0: From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. At a time when clear information on COVID and kids was nowhere to be found, Brown Economics professor Emily Oster filled the void. She gave parents data and tools for making tough decisions about things like daycare and visiting their grandparents advocated for a return to in-person learning and even developed a database on how COVID's affected schools across the country. Depending on whom you ask, Emily Oster was either a data-driven lifesaver or an academic who was disconnected from everyday realities. She's joining us here in the studio just as kids ages 5 to 11 are finally able to receive the COVID vaccine. We'll talk about that and more after a quick break. Welcome back. Emily Oster is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of three books on parenting. During the pandemic, she launched the COVID-19 School Data Hub, a database on how COVID has affected schools across the country. Professor Emily Oster, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me here.
0: Let's start by talking about Halloween candy. Now, uh, sources tell me that you wanted to put Halloween candy that your kids collected into a spreadsheet. Is is this true?
1: Yeah, that's that's true. I pitched it for my son. And I have an activity time this afternoon, and I told I told him what we could do in the time was we could categorize all of his candy and put it all in a in a sheet, and then we could make some some graphs with it. But he he rejected, what did he think of that? He idea? rejected that. He I'm rejected on his side idea.
0: on that. <laughs> but but uh, but I like this idea of maybe a, a Venn diagram instead.
1: Yeah. So we're gonna sort them into candies that he's eaten, candies that I've eaten, and candies that neither of us have eaten. Um, and I I don't know on the rug. I'm told it's happening on the rug. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, good luck with that research. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Before we uh, talk about the upcoming vaccines, let's take a step back. Before the pandemic, you were known for analyzing data on pregnancy and parenting. So how did you become the go-to person on COVID and kids?
1: It came out of the work on pregnancy and parenting. I was writing uh, a newsletter, which I started just before the the pandemic, uh, that was intended to be a newsletter, not about COVID, um, but about parenting and pregnancy, sort of following up on on my books. And then when COVID started, the questions that I was getting moved from, you know, should I sleep train my kid to what do I do about COVID? And I started doing a lot of writing in that space and that it sort of grew from there.
0: How do you respond to critics who say an economist shouldn't be giving public health advice?
1: I think for me, the thing, the two things that I would say are one, I think we always need multiple perspectives. uh, And there's a lot of value in bringing many different perspectives, particularly to a problem that is novel, like this. I think the other piece is that much of what we're all doing at this point is analyzing data. And we all have training in analyzing data. And I have a lot of training in that and people in public health have training in that we don't always see the data exactly the same way or think about it the same way. But again, I think sort of going back to the multiple perspectives, I think that there's there's something that we're adding as well.
0: You were one of the early voices to urge schools to reopen during the pandemic saying they were not the super spreader sites people feared. Uh, More than a year later, what did you get right? And what did you get wrong about schools reopening?
1: I think that broadly, uh, I got right that schools were not sources of super spreading events or even much spread at all. I think we we said that based on our data very early. And by the time we got, you know, four or five months after that, and certainly now, I think there was widespread agreement that schools were not significant COVID spread events. I think there's many things that we all got wrong. And I think that, you know, f- for me, um, a lot of what I think I got wrong was there were many moments in which I did not recognize sufficiently some of the fear and some of the discomfort that was driving people and fell too quickly into, well, let me show you the data, let me show you the data, without acknowledging that, uh, that fear. And I think for some of the messaging might have been more effective if I had engaged more with those concerns.
0: Maya Chavez, a high school social studies teacher in Providence, told the New York Times that there's a serious disconnect between your idea of what school looks like and the reality. At least 30 students at her school in Providence tested positive for COVID-19. So how do you respond to questions about whether your advice was actually workable for working class communities of color? Uh, You know, are you taking into account that private schools are in a much different place than public schools where, you know, maybe a classroom window doesn't open, for example?
1: On the one hand, finding resources for schools to open in a way that makes people feel safe, that involves precautions and testing and all of the things that we think we should have, that is very important. On the flip side, a lot of what we saw last year did suggest that schools could open safely, even with only a subset of those mitigations in place, including some that were very inexpensive, like masking. And so I think there's a little bit of attention there. And I think the other thing I would say is that when we see now, we're starting to see some of the losses that are coming to kids out of having not been in school last year, those losses are also being disproportionately felt by students of color, by students in lower income families. And that side of the coin is something that I think we need to have as part of the conversation. The learning
0: loss you're talking about. The
1: learning losses, my guess is eventually the socio-emotional losses, other kinds of health losses. So not just learning losses, but all of the other things that are going to come with this. But yes, learning losses too.
0: You advised Governor Raimondo on reopening schools. How did Rhode Island's reopening stack up with the other school districts you've seen?
1: So Rhode Island is one of the few predominantly Democratic states that had a widespread school reopening. Um, so we had, you know, if you look on our little map on our on our website, you can see, you know, Rhode Island has had a much more significant amount of reopening than than Massachusetts, um, probably comparable to Connecticut, certainly more than a place like uh, a place like California. So I would say on on the whole, Rhode Island was uh, was out ahead of of school reopening and also had very good data, a very good data collection infrastructure for looking at the safety around schools.
0: And how do, we, how do we do in terms of COVID spread in schools?
1: I think we did well in the sense that everybody, that in general last year, there was not much COVID spread in schools in any place, including Rhode Island. And so that I don't think there's any reason to think Rhode Island was an outlier in either direction.
0: Last week, Westerly launched Rhode Island's first COVID test to stay pilot program allowing unvaccinated students in pre-K through sixth grade to stay in school after COVID exposure if they test negative for the virus. Should that be used in other parts of the state?
1: Yes, I am a uh, an enormous proponent of <laughs> test-to-stay. Um, you know, I think that we've seen that quarantines are very disruptive for kids. Um, they cause a lot of missed school. They're disruptive for parents. And it is also the case that we do not have good evidence suggesting that quarantines prevent COVID. And we have good evidence to suggest that test-to-stay is uh, equivalent uh, to quarantines in terms of limiting amount of COVID Yeah, tell, tell us more about what the data show about test to stay. Yeah, so the best data we have on this is from the UK, where even in the presence of Delta, they actually did a randomized trial where some schools had, uh, had quarantine programs and some schools had test to stay, which just to be clear, involves testing kids with some level of frequency post-exposure, so allowing them to stay at school if they are willing to test every other day or every day. And in the UK data, those two, in terms of spread in schools and and additional cases, those two approaches proved to be the same. So it's not that test to stay was better than quarantine, but of course that shouldn't, that isn't the standard we want to we want to hold it to because the advantage of test to stay is that it saves kids days at at school. And there are a number of jurisdictions in the U.S. that have already started running this this year. So Massachusetts, many districts in Massachusetts have this option, uh, places in you know, Utah and some places in Georgia. So, so a bunch of places are already running this um, and you know, keeping kids in school while simultaneously, I think, not seeing a lot of conversions in quarantine.
0: You said that the risk of serious harm or death for kids with COVID is similar to the flu. What's the evidence to support that?
1: The evidence to support that is based on the millions of kids that have had COVID uh, over the last year. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of people did did get COVID, kids and, and adults. And when we look at things like hospitalization rates in cohorts of kids versus, well, cohorts of kids just in terms of the numbers, that we are seeing numbers that are are in the space of, of the flu.
0: You know, when I hear that, that uh, it, you feel calmer as a parent, but i also worried that this data will give people permission not to vaccinate their kids. How do you balance Clear information with messages that can can be misconstrued.
1: Yeah, I think that that's that, that's actually one of the hardest things here because I think we simultaneously would would like to encourage vaccination because there are benefits to vaccines because it will make kids less likely to get COVID and we don't want our kids to get sick. It will make them less likely to spread COVID and we don't want them to spread COVID to to others who might get sicker. But you know, on the same on the same token, sometimes our instinct in public health me- health messaging is to say. You vaccinate your kids because COVID is really dangerous for them. And that, of course, is both not supported in the, in the data, you know, for the majority of kids, but, but also and leads people to a level of fear that is potentially damaging for the other choices that they make. So we got to find a line in, in the middle in terms of, you know, helping people understand why this is a safe choice that has some benefits without telling them the reason to do this is because you should be terrified if you do not.
0: We're less than a week away as of this taping from a COVID vaccine for kids between the ages of 5 and 11. Um, what's your advice to parents about those vaccines?
1: So. I think that parents should get their kids vaccinated. Um, I think that we have seen uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that the COVID vaccine is generally safe. We have seen a lot of vaccinations in in the 12 to 15 year old set. We've seen you know good safety and efficacy data uh, in the 5 to 11 set in the Pfizer Pfizer trial. So all of that I think should be very reassuring. You know when we talk to parents about this, even people who for themselves were very enthusiastic about getting vaccinated there is more likely to be hesitancy for for kids.
0: Yeah, what is it that you're hearing from the parents about their concerns?
1: So I think people have a few different concerns. Um you know, one is the is this sort of feeling of well, this the disease is lower risk for kids. And so the kind of benefit side of this is smaller and so even if the I perceive the risks to be small, uh it's still, you know, it's it's a vaccine, it's it's a shot, so even a little bit of concern can make me think, well, I'm not sure about the benefit-cost trade-off. And I think the other thing that I hear most frequently is, you know, this trial was small. So we've seen, you know, this is 2,500 kids, and some of the complications, some of the side effects that we've seen from the vaccines in older age groups are very rare. So things like myocarditis, that's, you know, it's a a few people in a million in boys in the, you know, 16 to 24 age range of course, in a sample of 2,500 kids, you would not pick up a side effect of that magnitude. And people are worried, you know, we don't, we don't have enough sample size to know about those things yet.
0: What are you doing with your own kids, if I could ask?
1: I will be vaccinating my kids as soon as I can get the vaccine <laughs> for them. Um, so, you know, I, I feel very comfortable with what we have seen and very eager to you know, get my kids vaccinated.
0: The other day you tweeted about creating timelines for lifting masks once 5 to 11-year-olds are vaccinated. You said you've been reluctant to talk about that because you're a little afraid of, quote, being yelled at. At the risk of being yelled at, when should and shouldn't kids wear a mask at school?
1: So I think until we have the vaccines, which hopefully will be in a week, um, you know, it it has made sense to continue to have mandates. The vaccines are going to make it possible for everyone who uh, wants to vaccinate their kid to be able to, to do so. And I think that that, you know, that's the point at which we can start talking about removing mask mandates, in my view. Um, And, you know, I think once we do that, though, there will still need to be a conversation about when people would like to wear masks. For example, if you have a cold, it's a good idea to, to wear a mask. You know, if you are, Not feeling well. If you are anxious about the cold, I mean, there's like a lot of reasons that I think individual people will choose to to keep wearing this. But I think it's it's a time to start discussing what are the off ramps for masking in schools.
0: And just as a side note, we've had a couple of stories about parents, people yelling at the school boards about masking policies. Do you have any thoughts on that about that?
1: I don't, um, other than to say, you know, I think that this this issue of masking has become tremendously polarized, more polarized than almost any other aspect of the, the pandemic, um, and I'm not completely sure. Why? But I think that it is gonna. going we're, we're gonna need to dial down that polarization if we want to be making any progress here.
0: Limit. Can, can I ask you Sorry. one kind of a related question? Because I noticed you said you're sensitive, right? And and I, I was curious. Like you're not writing papers that are gonna be put on a shelf and no one's gonna read at at the university. You're reading stuff that's being debated. You're getting criticized online. You have people are tweeting at you, support and criticism. How how have you? Uh, how has that been for you?
1: So. I am a fairly sensitive person. I would say that my skin has gotten much thicker over the pandemic um, just because uh, I learned not to read the comments um, and also just to, to kind of accept that if you're going to be out in the public, you cannot take these kind of things as personally as I think my instinct is to take them. But the, the other thing I think is very protective for me is that I feel very bad in the moment and then I almost immediately forget uh, and I'm totally willing to do the same thing, like, uh, you know, two weeks later, even though at the time I'm like, this is terrible, I'm never doing anything like this again, then it's kind of immediately, immediately gone. And I think that that, that may be an unusual, but somewhat protective feature.
0: <laughs> and, and, and have you felt like it, going through the pandemic that you've been able to contribute something that uh, informs the public discussion? Because this is what we're, we've been talking about for two years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have been able to help in some ways. I think particularly on the school stuff, you know, I know that that in the end some people think the opposite of this, but I feel like I was helpful in opening schools and then that was a good thing. And when I think about some of the, of the pushback and some of the ways in which people yelled at me or I felt bad, I – come back a little bit to thinking, you know, but maybe some kids got to go to school because I got yelled at. And like, that's totally worth it.
0: Yeah. What do you say to the critics? Because they think you, this is dangerous advice. What do you say to them?
1: I would say that I, th- I think that there are, there are downsides in all the directions. And we failed to prioritize kids. And we failed to recognize how important it was for them to be in school, not just because they need to learn, but because for all of these other reasons. And I think that throughout the pandemic, we have not given kids what they deserved. And I hope that that will change.
0: You're dealing with data and figures and spreadsheets, but uh, how have you uh, handled dealing with the emotion that goes with these these public policy decisions, matters of, of life and death?
1: So I think that part of why I'm so analytical is because I like to control things and I like to be like in in control of the decisions I make and the stuff that happens. And if there's one thing I learned in the last year, it is that it's very difficult to be in control. And I have learned sort of emotionally how I react to that in some good and less good ways. And, you know, in the middle of the winter, I wrote this very frustrated, but vaccines weren't going fast enough and various things. And I wrote a whole post about my backyard ice rink. And how I had like decided that the way I was controlling my life was trying to have like the perfect backyard ice rink. And I would go out in the middle of the night and when it was like 10 degrees and like spray the ice rink, you have to spray the ice rink a lot and like try to get it like perfect. And for me, that was, that was sort of like, if you asked like, how did you deal with the pandemic? It was versions of try to get the perfect ice rink in the middle of the night, because that is one thing that you can control.
0: That is awesome. I'm coming over.
1: It's a very small ice rink.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Professor Oster, thank you for joining us
1: today. Thanks for having me.
0: Here are a few other stories to check out this week from Globe, Rhode Island. My colleague Brian Amaral has the latest on the homeless situation in Providence. Earlier this week, the city removed tents from a West End encampment and put up fences so the people living there couldn't get back in. There's a new shop in Garden City Mall. But it's not your typical chain store. It's a business devoted to showcasing Rhode Island artists. Alexa Gagas has more on the local marketplace called Ohanga. Providence has an ATV problem, but it's not alone. Amanda Milkovitz has a story about how cities such as Philadelphia, Worcester, and Boston are struggling to respond to illegal dirt bikes. Find these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Got a tip? Have someone you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at rinews@globe.com. at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org/passport. That's ripbs.org/passport.